This is Drilled Trains of Thought. Hello, uh, welcome back. It's been about a month, probably, since you've heard us. I am Nick Hayden, a.k.a. The Golden Child. And this is Tim of the Deal, a.k.a. Sir Reginald. And uh, we're happy to be back. Uh, we had a good break, good Christmas, good... Well, I did, at least. Tim, did you have a good Christmas? I did. It was too short of a break, but it was very nice. I had got to go to Chicago and see the... Uh, Jim Henson's Fantastic World Exhibit at the Museum of Science and Industry, which was amazing. Uh, <laughs> got to see actual puppets and sketches that Jim Henson had done. It was just absolutely fantastic. Very nice. Um, I didn't get to go to Chicago, but uh, I did celebrate my seventh wedding anniversary. So. Ah, congratulations. I know, seven years. It's a long time. Yeah. So that's what's been happening and you'll hear about some more later. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk late, more later. But I guess, well, first we want to do some listener feedback. Um, this is where we just touch base with uh, those who have been writing on our blog, saying uh, things they've enjoyed, things they thought were interesting. It's been a little while since we've done this, but uh, we had some people leave comments and feedback, and we always appreciate that. Yes, very much. I know Nathan Marshand, who we interviewed uh, a while back now, was going through our old episodes making comments. Back on our first episode, beginning at the end, when we were talking about endings, he was commenting on uh, various uh, alternate endings and DVDs, because we were talking about that on the podcast, and he mentioned Star Trek. Oh, there was a lot of deleted scenes in that. And uh, Rambo First Blood has a different ending, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, I guess, has a different ending. Which, I don't know if I would like a different ending. I really like the ending of that movie. It'd be interesting to see a different ending for First Blood, too, because, I mean, that's kind of a... Well, it, the ending is kind of a downer, but at the same time, it actually helps the movie say something rather than just being a violence fest. So, it'd be interesting if Rambo died. I've got mixed feelings about that. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. I know, and I just... Uh, we. I bought my uh, brother-in-law for his birthday, um, Salt, which is a very entertaining action movie. Well, uh-huh. Apparently, the DVD release has two alternate cuts of the movie. Really? Have you seen them yet? I haven't seen them, no. I thought that was quite a lot of different cuts for a movie like that. I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny sometimes how you don't know for sure if something will work, and you hate to spend all the money on it, but it's if it makes it a better movie... Well, and the thing, and when you're writing, and this, this will be, we'll touch on our topic today, you can always edit, you know, but for a movie, you have to have all the film there to begin with, and you can make edits with what you have. Yeah. Uh, on our episode two, Nathan left a comment about, uh, our art, we were talking about art versus commercialism, and saying just, you know, how some writers don't know how to sell their work, so they need, you know, the commercialism part, except... I don't know. I don't know how to summarize this one. This one is a good comment. But yeah, I think I think his last paragraph here is is, is particularly interesting. Uh, he says, personally, I think artistic has artistic in quotes. People, especially in the film industry, have just as many problems as quote commercial unquote people. I find that the former can be pretentious, so stuck up about how things should be, they can't see any other perspectives. They start thinking that only certain people will get them, so they intentionally start appealing to those people. In a way, they succumb to their own form of commercialism. And that's what he said. And, and I, I think he has a good point there. And I think I meant to touch on this a little more in the in our actual discussion and didn't. 
but it it is very true, particularly people who really like independent films. Sometimes they get in this attitude of we do this about dysfunctional families and, you know, people who have problems because this is the way that people like expect independent films to be. And instead of being as revolutionary and innovative as you're supposed to be, you just become kind of stuck in your own rut, a different kind of rut than mainstream Hollywood, but still a rut. Yeah, a rut that basically consists of not being those popular Hollywood yeah. movies. Yeah. I see that in books sometimes where you read the back and you're like, the only reason this got published was because it sounds completely different than anything's been done before. <laughs> not that it necessarily sounds like good plot. It's just like waterbed salesman owns an alligator and travels to see his dead wife in India. <laughs> it's true. It would, having worked in the library, I've seen books like that. <laughs> and they might be good books, but you're like, really? <laughs> they were stretching. They were stretching. Um, our final one from Nathan was on episode three, which we talked about uh, time management largely. He was talking about he thinks the key for uh, writers is flexibility. And I would agree with that, that you want to try to set a schedule up, but if it can't work for some reason, you just fi- you, you find time to write somewhere, mm. you know, even if it's just five minutes here and there. And then he thanked us for the interview we did with him, which we enjoyed. And yeah, yeah, he keep and he keeps selling books, so that's great. Actually, yeah, he's, I, I've talked to him recently, and he's uh, been mulling around ideas for his for a sequel, which has been fun. Fun, fun, that's cool. And then finally, we had uh, Greg um, VS. Just know. Greg, <laughs> just Greg. Okay, Greg versus the world. <laughs> who uh, wrote about our uh, atmosphere weather podcast and said he was surprised with how interesting the discussion was with weather and stories. And Tim and I were actually also surprised with how interesting it was. <laughs> it turned out to be one of our favorite episodes. I don't know that either one of us were expecting that. But it was it was cool. I heard from a couple other people who really enjoyed that one. So hopefully we can do something like that again. We're always trying to improve uh, our discussions, keep them interesting. And I will mention, actually, as listener feedback, the the plot of this episode and the next one are both kind of suggested by listeners, aren't they? Yeah. The topics? Yeah, well, let's talk about the, or today's topic and okay. we'll mention it. Because I think this is one that we've been kind of thinking about doing for a long time and it was suggested to us. And now we're finally doing So, let's now go to Story School. Okay, today's Story School is Adaptations. Basically, when you take a book and make it into a movie, or a play and make it into a movie, or a famous Walt Disney amusement park ride and make it into a movie. Of course, there's a lot of different ways that stories get adapted from one form to another, but for purposes of trying to keep our discussion a little bit simpler, we're going to focus mainly on things that have been adapted into film. Because we were listening to various back and forth of adaptations, and we found out it would take about three hours to talk about them all. So. <laughs> there's so, so many different types and there's so much that goes into adapting something from one form to another. You have to keep keep into account what makes one medium different from another and you've got demands of the fans and all kinds of stuff to consider. Now, Tim, you actually led into what I, my first question was going to be. I thought maybe we could each talk about in a mainly from writing to movie, from book to mm-hmm. movie. You know, what's special about plots in a book and what 
you can do well and maybe not so well in that, and then maybe you can talk about what movie strength is, and then we can apply that to some of the recent movies that have come out adapted from books. Sure, yeah, go ahead and start us off. Writing, the, the thing I was thinking with words is that they're actually much more ambiguous than people think. Everyone has different images, even if they have a very exact description. You talk about Lothlorien, and, and you know, D Tolkien's relatively descriptive, but the reader engages with the words each differently, um, which is different than in a movie, and I'll let you go into that, but, you know, there's only one shot on the screen. Now, that's very interesting. I, my One of my communication professors at Upland would probably have some words to debate you about that. Well, I like to hear it then. <laughs> I like to hear it when, I, when we get to that. Yeah, um, okay. Go on. And second, at least some, I mean, some stories, books, are very plot-heavy, very just, this happened, this happened, this happened. But most of them, especially the ones that last very long, first off, they have the internal, internal thoughts and emotions and stuff, which you, you can communicate in film, but it comes off differently. Mm -hmm. um, but I think also the, I'm going to use the word atmosphere, I'm not th talking weather, but that words are connected to a whole range of other impressions that you can describe, you can imp give the impression of a battle, which comes off different than seeing the battle. Mm, that's very true. My, my favorite example of this is the impression of the elves in Lord of the Rings, to me at least, always comes off more mystical than... I think it's very easy to pull off in a visual medium because there's there's a almost a spiritual aspect to it, which not that you can't put into concrete visual visions, but feels like it loses something in translation. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely agree with you there. And I think I think that's the hardest thing doing from well, and then also books can be any length. I mean, mm. movies pushing three hours are very rare, but in a book you can have five hundred pages, you can have multiple plot lines, multiple characters, and you just read the name, and it's easier. I think it's sometimes easier, unless you're, and some directors can do it, easier to follow multiple characters in a book than sometimes in a movie. Me, and you could argue that I don't know, but I think that for me, the impressions, the like, if I if my book String Fred was made into a movie, some of it would work perfectly great because you know it's very visual and everything. But then when you get to stuff like The Horizon. You're going to lose something. It's going to become a little like a caricature of what it actually is, I think, mm -hmm. when you move it into film. But that might just be me. How about uh, what do you think the strengths of movies are? The strength of movies is largely in the visuals and the the sensory of – actually, I wanted to say sensual, not in the sense of – you know, sexy, but sensual in the case of, you know, it's coming through your eyes, coming through your ears. And in that sense, film is a very emotional medium because it draws us in. Um, I think, like you commented in one, books, writing can be more intellectual. Film really tries to appeal, particularly Hollywood film, tries to appeal to your heart, to your emotions, and really get you invested in the story. So spectacle is big and uh, just kind of imagery. Big difference, I, I do agree, is that you can't go into as much detail sometimes about things in the book than you can in a movie. And that's a lot of times where fans of a book will get very upset at the movie because they're like, oh, they left out this detail and they, they didn't explain this well enough and, and blah, 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 blah. Well, because you, you don't want to have people just talking, spewing content and info. And you can't get into a character's head quite as well in a film as you can in a book. I mean, there are directors who, who have. You can, there are ways to, to really get into the character's 
mindset and empathy, but not to the same degree. You can't have characters narrating. You can't have a, or a narrator even, you know, describing what the character is, is doing. In the book, you say this is what he's doing. In the movie, you, you're asking the audience to interpret a lot more of what's going on. That's, that's true, yeah. And that's probably the area where my communications professor I was thinking of would disagree with you a little bit. In her perspective, and she was an older lady who who loved academia more than our media program. <laughs> but in her perspective, words have more concrete meanings. They imply something. So you can get a more concise message across with a well-crafted written thing. Whereas in a visual medium... It's all very impressionistic. I mean, the director certainly can direct your focus and your attention to what he wants you to see. But at the same time, people come off with certain movies with different interpretations. I mean, look at how people, different people interpret Inception. That's, <laughs> that's like designed to be ambiguous. In fact, it is designed to be ambiguous. Christopher Nolan admitted as much. Actually, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm not sure how I would disagree with it. I think you're right, that movies are much more impressionistic because the viewer is interpreting, and words are concrete. Mm -hmm. I guess what I meant is, at least as far as visuals and settings and people go, you have more you create the you create the images in your mind when you're reading. You don't necessarily create the meaning like you do in a movie, but you create the images. Yeah, and I guess that's the key difference, because you're imagining these things in your mind. You're Basically, the author is giving you certain pieces of the story, and then your mind's eye kind of fills in the blanks the way you want it to be filled out. Whereas in a movie, the outside elements are already there. I guess, in a sense, there's less work for the imagination in the movie. I sound like I'm bad-moving film, but I'm really not. It's just they're different mediums. Oh, yeah, and and I think you're, well, two things. First off, I do think then then film can be a medium where the the internal is ambiguous. Mm. The word, words do carry more concrete meaning. The books are very detail-oriented, very um, multifaceted. Lot, and movies sometimes, because they're emotional, they cut off anything that's not essential for the main thrust. They're, in some ways, they're simpler, but they can affect you more mm, yeah. for the same reason. Or sometimes, because they have to be so short, you have to work harder to just keep the essentials. It's like the difference between writing a story and then having to cut down to to fit in like a poetry reading, where you cut down anything that's not essential. And in some cases, that works really well. I mean, consider comic book movies. You know, comic book series, they have to keep the story going over a while. Villains never die, and it gets kind of strains plausibility after a while because <laughs> the villains never get killed or, you know, locked up for good. They always have to escape because they always have to play the heroes. Whereas in a movie, you're just distilling all that stuff, all the lore from comics into one two-hour experience. So you can have a more open and closed story. That's true. Let's go through some of this process, and we'll talk about yeah. um, some something that came out pretty recently, and this will be a nice case study for us. And that would be The Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which I think both of us have a high fondness for the original book. Yes, and that's a book that also carries a lot of uh, extra meaning to some of the scenes. Like, going through the lily pads at the end, there's this sense of approaching a spiritual aspect that's hard to translate over. Mm, yeah. in a visual medium. At least I've always felt. Like, it's the same reason I wouldn't want 
to see a movie version of The Last Battle. Yeah, see, I, I, I agree. That's a book that I, that I want to keep in the mind's eye. I don't really want to have someone else try to do it because I don't think I don't think a visual representation could do it justice. It's basically depicting heaven, and heaven has always only been an abstract thing. And any time that we try to try to visualize it, it comes out looking. You know, you get people like in heaven or on clouds with with angel wings and silly <laughs> stuff like that. Not even approaching what, what I think the actual feel of wonder that we're yes, going to feel yeah, there. The feel of wonder. Wonder is a hard feel to capture, I think, in movies. Mm. Miyazaki is amazing at it. But, That's true. Miyazaki is amazing at it. But American filmmakers have eludes them a lot of times. So, anyways, back to Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I got a sidetracked. Yeah. <laughs> Tim and I both, well, I think we both agree that it was a relatively... Um, it was a good film, but it, it could have been great. It, it kept faithful to the idea of Dawn Treader, but we felt like some of the changes they made for the sake of being a movie weren't necessary. Mm -hmm. And I have a hard time explaining this sometimes to people <laughs> when they ask, well, what would you think of it? Well, I'm like, well, I enjoyed it, but I don't know why they needed to do these things. I mean, I know why they thought they needed to do them, but I disagree. So let's let's give an example. You go ahead and start, Tim. Well, I love the opening of the film. I love the swashbuckling thing when they first got into Narnia. I've always loved the story about the slave traders. Um, they get captured and they escape from that. I love all that kind of stuff. And I have to make a point. The the scene of them getting into Narnia was wonderful. That was cool. Yeah, that made me... That was very exciting. And, and that's one of those scenes that I think almost works better in a movie. That being some way. Sucked. I mean, maybe not better, but at least it's, it's, it's a very visual action-y scene. That's true. And it's not something that you see every day, you know, an entire room filling with water. and Yeah, that's very cool stuff to see. But the first problem was I felt the quest to collect the swords was honestly a little silly. Like my sister pointed out, it's kind of like a turn Narnia into a video game. You know, <laughs> I, have, I have to collect all these quests from the four corners of the earth in order to summon Captain Planet. Or, I mean, <laughs> I mean, save Narnia. Why? Why is this necessary? You felt like like they wanted to do it so that there was a mission, but they already had a mission to go get the princes. Mm -hmm. Or the lords. The lords, yes. Thank you. And leaving, I guess, a little more subtle, a little more adventuresome, and not like I'm ticking off swords. Yeah. There, I know the original book is inspired a lot from... Like seafaring tales, like the Odyssey, which is which is very episodic. And I don't understand why they couldn't have tried to do something like that for a family kids movie. I think it could have worked. I mean, recently I just watched Oh Brother Where Art Thou, which is a very interesting movie, uh, loosely adapted on the Odyssey, but taking place in 1930s Mississippi. But it's episodic like that. They come across you know like sirens and various threats as they they're trying to find this treasure. I don't see why it couldn't have been more. I mean, there was some of that. They had like, you know, little mini episodes. But because their focus was more on the Dark Island thing, more about they had to have this big climactic battle against this thing at the end, they lost some of the sense of just exploration. And I think exploration in a fantasy setting like that is plenty to make for an exciting movie. I agree. And I think I agree that the, the move in the Dark Island to be the climactic battle was, I guess, a single change they made that I didn't think they had to. Mm. I know everyone wants a giant climactic battle, but if you had focused it on exploration, I'm not sure it would have been... I don't think people would have came out going, oh man, there wasn't a big battle at the end. Uh -huh. 
it was like they needed it to be too much like a typical Hollywood movie, whereas if they had been a little more daring and said, you know, this is just about the exploration. It's more about seeing these amazing sights as we're going along. It could have been something really unique and really different and family entertainment. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think the I think the episodes were, you know, well done and entertaining. I mean, mm-hmm. Eustace was great and the dra- and him and his dragon was great and the the oh drat. What are the Huffle Duffel Pods? Or, yeah. Yeah, Duffel Pods. Yeah. Uh-huh. I don't know that it necessarily adds anything to the sense of the movie as a whole to move things around. Okay, so the the end was kind of cool with the battle and everything, but I'm not sure. It changes the climax of the movie from basically a a spiritual climax in the in the book, mm-hmm. you know, finding the end, you know, Aslan's land to a physical climax, which is killing the whatever it is. And the other thing is, I think by having to do that, they made the symbolism a little bit more heavy handed. I hadn't really thought about temptation being a main theme of the book until Douglas Gresham started talking about it, you know, in interviews beforehand. And when I thought about it, I was like, okay, yeah, I can see that. But when you actually have your characters saying things like, don't let, don't think about bad things, or you're letting your bad thoughts control you and stuff like that, it becomes a little too heavy handed morals, I think. Whereas I, I'm always feel like if you have those things, yeah, definitely have the dark Island, which brings nightmares to life and have definitely have scenes of Caspian and, and Edmund feuding over the Lake of Gold or the Isle of Death. But, don't yeah, you don't need Lucy sh- there saying, look at what you're doing. Yes. The, yeah. the audience already knows what they're doing. Uh-huh. And I couldn't help but think of when they were about to attack the Black Island or, some, or the Dark Island. Whoever it was who said, don't think about your worst fears. And Edmund's like, oh, no, it just popped out. The first thing I thought of was, stay fluff marshmallow, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's exactly the same thing they did in Ghostbusters. <laughs> yeah. So what can we learn from, at least from our point of view, about adaptation from Narnia? Which we both enjoyed the movie, but we have these little... Yeah, there was never a point when I started getting angry and being like, oh, this is completely rubbish. I mean, it was a fun adventure movie, I admit. It's just, it could have been something different. For me, I guess one of the points is, let's see, how do I say this? I understood the the changes they made for Prince Caspian a little bit more than they did for this one. The book for Prince Caspian is a little too short, and I understand why they wanted to pad that out a little bit with like the castle invasion and things like that. But I guess the key is figuring out what things are important to capture the the story arc feel of a book as opposed to a movie. And I don't think I'm explaining myself very well here. <laughs> I, I'm I'm following you, but it's. At least for me, and you can come back, Tim. I'll let you know. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) For me, my main thing with adaptation, I used to be a big stickler for it needs to be as close as possible. Right. I remember when I was, I don't know, middle school, I read Jurassic Park. And then I went to see the movie, and I hated the movie. Because it changed all this stuff. Uh I like the movie now. Yeah. And now that I saw that um, Michael Crichton, I think, helped write the screenplay, I thought, oh, well, at least he made changes he thought were important. Mm-hmm. But first off, keep the feel. I mean, the the themes, which I think Dawn Treader did. Mm-hmm. But I'm a big one. Don't add anything mm. if you can help it. Take out what you need. Trim it down. That makes sense. But adding stuff just seems... I would be very cautious about adding things. That's true, particularly since a movie you've got limited time anyway, and usually more story in the book than there is in the movie. 
I think arguably Prince Caspian is a case of the opposite. I, I can see that, yeah. Most of the time, you've got plenty of stuff. Kind of like The Two Towers, which I always felt was the weakest of the Lord of the Rings adaptations. I agree. They, they had so much they had to cut out, and they added stuff. Like Aragorn falling off a cliff? I mean... Exactly! Yeah. Like, what was the purpose of that? <laughs> I mean, I want, give me more ends. Give me more something. Don't mm-hmm. make Aragorn fall off a cliff just so we can see Arwen, who's not even in that book. Yeah. But. And I always felt they, well, again, I understand why they did it. And it it's, this is always a funny thing about enjoying writing and filmmaking. You see why they do it one <laughs> way, but then you wish they could have done another. Two, Two Towers is such an awesome cliffhanger with Frodo being captured at the very end. And I really missed that in the movie version. But then they had to, like, add... They had to weaken Faramir's character, which really ticked a lot of people off, because Faramir is awesome in the book, and he's a wuss in the movies. But, I mean, I understand, again, why, because it would have made their role a lot, sh- probably a lot shorter in Return of the King. But I wouldn't have hurt, I don't think, to have seen more of Frodo and Sam just wandering through Mordor. I mean, it would have been very bleak, and then included more of that in the extended version, which was appreciated. But it couldn't have hurt to have more of it in Return the King and less of and more of Shelob in Two Towers. Now, here's a question, I guess, and I'll ask you, Tim, since you're at film school right now. Mm-hmm. When they adapt books, do they feel like they have to shoehorn it into the traditional way a movie runs? I mean, sometimes I think, take the book, honestly trim stuff down, but let the book determine the structure of the movie. Mm. But they don't often do that. And maybe maybe make a horrible movie. I don't know. I never tried it. And see, that's exactly the thing I felt about Voyager Letter on Treader. They were trying to shoo it into the form of a typical movie, and I don't think they needed to. I mean, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou was a very popular movie when it came out. And, I mean, there's a climax of it, but I still say you could have had a, just reaching the end of the world. You know, Narnia isn't on a globe. It's uh, It has an end of the world. And yeah. So just the very fact of getting there, you could build that up and it could be something usual. I agree completely about building that up. I think that would have taken the place of needing Dark Island. Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I haven't really, I haven't taken any screenwriting classes, I admit. I don't know how much pressure there is to, in the adaptation process, to conform it that way. An interesting thing, like the Harry Potter movies. Um, I've read those books and re- watched the movies. The one, not the recent one, but the one last year, The Half-Blood Prince, I thought was a really good movie. My brother hated it. Really? Because he, well, the thing is, is he's listened to the audio drama version of the Harry Potter like ten times. So he knows all the details. So all you could see was everything they were missing. There are books with lots of complex things and funny scenes, and they had to cut all that out just for the plot. Uh-huh. I mean, and the, the Harry Potter books, uh, movies still end up two and a half hours sometimes. But I feel like the later Harry Potter movies have worked, have done a very good job of cutting everything that's not necessarily making a strong central focus, as opposed to the early ones that I think maybe tried too hard to be just like the book. Uh-huh. But then you get people who love the book. Here's my question. Why do we make books into movies when it just makes people who are big fans of the books mad? Well, this is an interesting question. For one thing, I do think there are some things that movies can bring to stories that I've already uh, been adapted. An interesting thing I, I took away from my history of American cinema class is that Hollywood has been remaking books basically since it ever since it first began. We complain about you know there's no new ideas in Hollywood. They're all recycling all these <laughs> all these old things. Well, the truth is, I mean, 
it's nothing new. Studios back in the 20s and 30s, they anything they made, they adapted from a book or a play if they could help it. Mm-hmm. And some of our most famous American films are actually from from books. I mean, besides obvious ones like Gone with the Wind or Wizard of Oz. Well, and the, the thing is, those, most, half the people, that is their view of that story. Like, Wizard of Oz, some people don't even know it's a real book. Yeah, that's true. Because the visual, the excellence it was done with, is so so overwhelms the cultural memory of the book. Yeah. And sometimes the person finds the, you know, the director, whoever finds the book, likes it, pulls out the best parts of it, mm-hmm. and almost does a, something that distills all the, you know, the strongest parts of the book. Yeah, basically. And there are other films that were adapted from books or plays that no one remembers the original source anymore, but they remember the movie. I mean, Casablanca was adapted from a play called uh, Everybody Goes to Rick's. And The Maltese Falcon with Humphrey Bogart, that was actually the third adaptation of that book. Of a wow. Book. Yeah. It, it took Hollywood three times to get it right. Wow. And that's the one that everyone remembers. There's a built-in audience for a book or a play. Just the very fact that this has existed somewhere else before, people instantly think oh it must be worth you know investigating i don't really care to go find the play but there's there's this movie out so i'll go see see that and see what it's about to be honest it is a big business move for one thing it's turned out some really awful movies but it has turned out some really good ones i wonder and this this probably contradicts everything i just said (laughs) but i wonder sometimes if the best movie adaptations are the ones that hold the book very loosely. I was just thinking, How's Moving Castle? Wonderful movie, based off a book. No one's read the book in in, in America. It's a British book. Uh-huh. Well, probably more people have now. Well, that's true. Natasha's read it, and she really likes it. I mean, it's, it's substantially different. Yeah, that's what I hear. But Miyazaki, you know, took what he liked in the book and basically made it his own story. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if directors who do that make movies that last... I mean, it makes still like, you know, people are really fond of the book Mad, but I wonder if they last longer than... I feel like a big difference is, it kind of goes back to our commercial versus artistic thing. Are the changes you're making more because this is how you think everyone does it? Or are they more better representative of your artistic vision? I, I would actually agree with that a lot. Um, because I know, like, some of Hitchcock's stuff's based off plays and movies, like The Birds and things. Mm-hmm. Well, not, I mean, not The Birds. That, that's a short story, I think. Well, Rope is. We talked about that. I mean, oh, yeah. you can kind of tell well, because it's all in one well, <laughs> one place. <laughs> but because his artistic vision changed what he thought was necessary. Mm-hmm. And so all his stuff, you know, everything he made lasts. Yeah. So I think I think that has a lot to do with it, the artistic versus commercial End of things. And I, I was just thinking of like Anne of Green Gables, which I remember one librarian at a place, a town where we used to that we used to go to a lot. The only adaptation she thought was better in the movie form than the book was Anne of Green Gables. And I know some people who really liked the book too, but the I think the movies captured a lot of the small town charm. They developed the characters really well, really lovingly, and you can that's very evident from those movies. Yeah. I've I think I've seen the first two and yeah, they're they are very good movies. So I was talking about commercialism versus artistic vision. Most movies when they try to redo eighties T V shows, don't not not across the board, they tend to just do it, I think, because they think it'll be a movie that'll make money, not because they necessarily are in love with the source. That's possible. I mean, look at the awful Smurfs movie coming out. What is that about? I mean, I don't not, know. We, we won't touch it now, but honestly, most times cartoon 
to real life is not a good idea. Generally, yeah. And anytime they try to take... Like the Smurfs movie, they're taking them from this magical cartoon setting and put them in modern New York. Why? Yeah. I don't want to see that. I want to see a <laughs> Smurfs movie. I want to see the Smurfs being Smurfs, not the Smurfs being hip-hop or whatever other garbage <laughs> they're going to throw at them. <laughs> yeah, cartoon to, move, to real life rarely seems to work. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Unless it's like a new cartoon, like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Well, okay. I mean, but that's not based off anything. No, it's I mean, not. It's not. As much as it sounds like a good idea to make Air, Last Airbender into a movie, after I finished watching the series, I'm like, it's so perfect in the form it's in. Yeah. How do you compress three seasons of awesomeness and awesomeness into six hours of movie? Yeah, it's, it's very true. And uh, The Last Airbender was painful, particularly since you could see so much potential there, but they just try to distill so much into too little time, yeah. particularly the beginning. I always felt, and you and I have talked about this before, but I always felt the beginning of The Last Airbender is what lost the audience because you try to compress 40 minutes of story and character development into 12 minutes, and it just did not work. Yeah. So it seemed like it'd be brilliant, but... And that's the thing. I mean, even as fans, we get into that same kind of mindset of, oh, I want to see it done a different way with real people. If they could do that, it would look cool. And the trailers were very exciting looking. And I think some of the, you know, the bending action was cool. It's just they lost the performances. They lost the who the characters were by trying to cram so much into too little time. Yeah, and and that, I think that's also a problem with adaptations. The cramming, if the original source is a lot about character or stuff like that, you have to smash into a plot-oriented movie. Because most mm-hmm. movies are plot-oriented and not character-oriented. I mean, they're not character profiles. Yeah, I yeah, no, that's true. I think that's a good chunk of adaptation. I'm sure we have to come up with more, but I used to complain a lot about adaptations, but I don't necessarily anymore. Mm-hmm. And I understand why they make some changes. And I don't know, it's always interesting to, if you can see, see both why they did it and, you know, does it make, what it comes down to is, did it make a good movie? Yeah. I do think more people are coming to the understanding that film and books are two very different mediums. So you have to grant them a little leeway. I mean, if they are going to do it, you have to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that, like you said, does it improve? Does it still tell a good story? Sometimes it's been successful. Sometimes it hasn't. Yes. So I guess uh, that will wrap up story school with that and go on to our first soundtrack. Right. Um, I guess I have the first soundtrack today. Well, all remixes are kind of uh, adaptations of another song. But I thought I'd go a level more today. Maze Dude, who's a remixer, who's also an overclocked remix, but also has his own site, MazeDudeMusic.com, um, released a couple years ago this thing called the American Album, where he remixed American composers, because he said Japanese composers were always being remixed, not the American composers. And so I found this song that is a remix of a song from Tomorrow Never Dies, which the composer on the soundtrack of the video game of Tomorrow Never Dies remixed from the movie. So it's it's a remix of a remix called Carvosity, and it's kind of fun, peppy, and James Bondy. So enjoy.
and welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that little song. Very groovy. Yeah, I listened to it like 10 times in a row today. It's, <laughs> it's fun to put on repeat. Nice. So next up is Project Update. So Tim, I'm going to go ahead and start with you since I'm leading today. Okay. What have you been doing? Have you finished up with Piece of Cake? Getting really close. <laughs> well, uh, I should say we're getting really close to lock picture state. We're going to have a lock picture by the end of the month. So probably um, close to the time when you hear this, we'll have our picture locked. And then the next two months after that, we'll go into sound, music, and color corrections um, stages, which I will be doing the sound editing for class, which is nice that I'm actually doing it for class now as opposed to just in my spare time, which is more difficult. It actually is part of my course requirement now, so that, <laughs> that works out well. The music and color correction will be handled by other people. It's becoming much more manageable. We're almost to... The old project is, uh, is due by March 31st. It'll be played at the Regent Student Showcase and hopefully distributed at various film festivals uh, sometime thereafter. Nice. Yeah, it's coming along. Uh, the other thing I've been doing this month is a friend's portfolio project. I've been helping do i've been assistant directing basically which doesn't mean that i help direct actors it means more like i direct people around to making sure that they have what they need and people are doing what they're supposed to be doing oh nice so it's been kind of fun we've had a lot of different things going on like there was a scene where someone drove a bentley down this country road like 98 miles per hour <laughs> so that was, nice. that was kind of crazy we filled the kitchen with smoke about half choked some of us and all the people with <laughs> all the people with asthma had to go outside because man that stuff was potent <laughs> they use these chemicals that were like similar to ones that you'd use for a smoke bomb okay so it it wasn't just smoky it was like nasty smoky kind of got in your lungs and so <laughs> we had a fan going when we didn't need smoke going on and uh fun. yeah a lot of fun th we're supposed to have a helicopter sometime in the shoot too like an actual helicopter nice so yeah it's it's been a hardcore shoot but it's been really fun yeah that sounds very exciting i think you also have a, a leo video you need to post right mm, that's right that's right one from uh, my lighting class uh last semester so i need to i need to get that on facebook and or uh, YouTube, and we'll have, a, we'll have a link for it on the Derail Train site. That sounds great. I'm pretty happy with the way that turned out, actually. I it was I got to see it the other uh, during Christmas. It was it was quite a good time. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't have much time to do much else in terms of creative projects over Christmas break. My computer was sick, and I didn't really wasn't really able to use it for like from the day I got home until I got back to to Virginia Beach. So a lot of those other projects I talked about doing, yeah, they didn't really get done. <laughs> you had a media fast. Yeah, which is probably good for me. Well, <laughs> maybe not so much a media fast as a work fast. I was playing a lot of Kingdom Hearts, which we'll have to talk about at some point. That's true. Well, I've been trying to write a flash fiction every week. I got two done so far this month. By the way, I, I, I wanted to ask you, are you feeling okay? Because like each of those flash fictions you've been writing have been kind of sad and depressing. <laughs> you know what? I <laughs> when I posted them, I'm like, you know what? This looks really depressing. <laughs> because one of them, the one, the one called Man, was actually written like months ago. Oh, okay. But it just got published right around now. And the one Hymn of Exile, which is sad, was written like in June. But it was just published now. Wow, you've really been sitting on them for a while. 
Yeah, so so all these sad ones came out simultaneously, <laughs> and I was I was wondering if you would start thinking I was depressed or something. Both of those you just mentioned are pretty cool, but I was I I was actually just catching up on several of them today, so that's why it's occurred to me like, man, these are all sad because uh, I read like three of them in a row. But man is the one on the beach, right? Yeah, yeah, that one was was really good. I they came back to mind sometime during today, and really. Very, very thought-provoking. I like that one a lot. Good. Maybe we'll have to put a link to that one on this episode. Yeah. That one came not because I meant to write one, just because I felt like I needed to write that one. Mm. So. I could kind of tell. Yeah. It was it was a good one, though. And I was going to mention, actually, that Flash Fiction Man is one of those that I think works much better as a story than it would in a visual medium. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Because it's all internal. I mean, mm-hmm. nothing happens. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's sitting on the beach for, you know, 600 words, and that's all that happens. If you try to do it visual, you would just get cast away. <laughs> <laughs> or lots of or lots of weird flashback images. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure you can do it, but um, let's see. I've been, so I've been trying to write those. I mean to be getting around to reading my first two books so that I can start finishing my third book of Stern and Fred. Yeah. Unfortunately, I've been kind of bogged down with books lately that I need to read for my teaching. Uh, you mean to bring that up again because I don't know how we've talked about that much. Oh, we might not have talked about me teaching. I teach a uh, 6th, 7th, 8th grade writing for like three days a week at the, my church's uh, school they run. And um, I have three books. And actually, I just finished one. They're very good. Three books for the 7th, 8th grade who are going to be doing a Holocaust section. I'll have to make them write papers and stuff. They don't do literature. I just do the writing end of things. Mm. But I just finished reading Friedrich, which is a very interesting book. And I liked it because it was very episodic. I mean, it was very, like, just snapshots. I mean, they connect, but they don't worry about the connections, which actually inspired me for one of these book ideas I've had for a long time that I could never figure out how to do. Oh, cool. So, that will be coming up. That kind of sounds like A Day in the Life of Ivan Zapanovich. How do you yeah. say that? Denosovich, I think? Denosovich? Yeah, that's probably it. But is it somewhat like that? Well, except Ivan Nasevich is all one day. Right. Um, this is actually over about seven years. Oh, okay. And it'll be like the movies, 1942. And there'll be a, this incident of this Jewish boy trying to go to the movies when they're legal to go to the movies, if you're Jewish. Uh, and then it'll be like, you know, The Bench, 1940. Well, it only goes to 1942 because then it kind of ends. But it starts in like 1936 or something. And it's basically just these snapshots of... Um, Friedrich, this uh, Jewish young man, well, he's about uh, 16 by the end of the book, how German culture interacted directly in his life. Okay. It's a very, very, very good style to do it and very powerful, very short chapter. It's like a 130-page book. It's very short. And then I got, I'm reading Very Well to Manzanar right now, which is about the Japanese internment camps in America during World War II. Okay. And then I got to read Devil's Arithmetic one more time, which is another Holocaust one. But, so, all that's a long digression, meaning I haven't got around to reading my Stern and Fred books yet. And I don't feel competent to write the third one until I reread everything. Mm. Hopefully, in another week or so, I'll be ready to do that. Otherwise, I keep plugging away. Um, I, I've been updating my website, meaning I just finally put all my uh, Brittany Bontrager uh, journals that I had started, like, two years ago. I saw that. Yeah, you did the... Who, you were Max, weren't you? You were writing some librarian who was all disgruntled with the world. Oh, well, yeah, but I didn't carry that very far. Not to the extent that you did. I only had about three months. But anyways, so I've been I've been doing some tidying up and some stories and stuff. So I'm, I want to get to the point where I'm writing a novel again. Mm, yeah. 
Well, I need to get to the point where I'm sending out my novels again. But the thing, though, about uh, what's left in my life, the Brittany Bontrager journals, though, is that I wonder if people would be lost with those without having read the story project. I don't think so necessarily. I mean, I don't know. Maybe not. I guess. I guess you don't you need to know that she was in the story project. She mentions it briefly, but it's mainly just her angry at life when she graduates high school. Okay. Yeah, I guess that's true. You know some more about her, but I guess you don't necessarily need to know that to understand what she's complaining about in her journals. That's true. I well, I hope so. Yeah, I'm in the. I'm. I've been January's been kind of busy on my job end because I do accounting and year end and an anniversary, which was great. But you know, I don't write then. And eventually, I'm going to start writing a novel again. But until then, I'll keep plugging away through my flesh fictions, which I'm like almost halfway through disc two of Final Fantasy Final Fantasy Ten. Um, oh. For for our audience, my flesh fiction, many of them, not all of them, are based on, I, I had this personal challenge that I was going to go through the entire soundtrack of Final Fantasy X and write a flesh fiction for each of them. Which you, if you read them, there's a lot of them that have to do with music. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's a lot of them that have to deal with that dumb hymn of faith. Oh, that keeps coming up all that the time. That keeps coming up, yeah. yeah. Actually, the, the most recent one I just wrote came from that. Which one was that? The, the... the Signature. Oh, okay, I, that was that was a good one. I have to admit, I didn't quite get the Dream Lord one or the not Dream Lord, the, the Cloud Little Cloud Lord. Yeah, the Little Cloud Lord. It's it's kind of a myth, you know, kind of like how did rain start? Uh huh. I wasn't sure if it was supposed to be a specific myth that there were supposed to be Greek gods that I didn't recognize or something. No, they're just uh, myth inspired. I kept the gods very vague. They didn't want to go into all that. Either. Okay. Didn't know all that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so I guess that's a pretty good update. Probably more than any of you guys wanted to know. <laughs> Next up is Cinema Selections with Brian Scherschel. We did this, uh, what, two podcasts ago? Where I talked with Brian about the best years of our lives. When I visit him next week, actually, he's going to lend me the CD so, or the DVD so I can watch. At the same time I did that interview, we did another interview, and he talked about double indemnity. If you've forgotten, Brian is an expert on classical cinema, and he's trying to teach Nick and I a little bit more, I think. Uh, try to brush up our uh, repertoire of scene, of scene films. And sounds like he's got another good one for us to talk about today. So, uh, here we go. All right. Hello, Brian. I'm glad you could meet with me tonight. How are you doing? Uh, really well. How are you? I'm doing great. So I guess, Brian, we'll go ahead and start with our one we've decided we were going to talk about. Double Indemnity that was released in 1944. I guess give us first kind of the rundown. What sort of movie is this? Uh, this is a quintessential film noir. It's from the middle, right about the middle of the 40s. Film noir was really took off during the 40s. And there are so many titles that are included, but I think this one is... I think it's possibly the most popular film noir ever, quite possibly. I mean, it's it's very high up there. It's a classic film that I wanted to pick because also you, it's very hard to discuss classical films with somebody, and especially introduce somebody to classic films, unless you have seen an Edward G. Robinson movie. I, I find him to be one of the most amazing uh, actors, you know, fantastic character actor, and many other things. So it introduces you to, to, to his classic style and just and he was perfect in film noirs and this is one of his best this is one of his best movies that he's ever done. Mr. Marrick, I'll open it. Don't you know how to open the door? Just put your hand on the knob. 
Turn it to the left. Now pull it toward you. That's the bar. What were some of the other movies he's been in that people might have heard of? Oh, there's a really good one called Key Largo that stars Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart, along with Edward G. Robinson. And that was from, I believe, 49. And that's a really good one. Uh, that is one where Edward G. Robinson plays a, uh, a gangster. And he's and that was one of his, you know, those were some of his best roles, was playing like a mob boss or a gangster. And because he had the voice, he had the look, he had the, the massive presence that it took, that he took along with him everywhere that he acted. But yeah, that's, that was another big one. Um, he's been okay. in some really big ones um, also. I have, there are some that I haven't seen where he's also a gangster, but they're all, they're all really high rated. And they're all very well cherished by, people, by movie watchers. For Double Indemnity, then, I got you, I got you sidetracked. The, it's in film noir. What's kind of the main premise? Right. Um, well, Double Indemnity is a, a, a life insurance term. What it says is it's a clause inside a life insurance policy that allows for a double the you know, original amount of the, of the policy if the death is of a certain nature. And most of these uh, types of things are things that are really rare. And so that is the, the premise of it. And then it involves Fred McMurray, who is, he's well known, I believe, as uh, the father from My Three Sons. But uh, in this, he plays a rather darker role. Uh, he plays the insurance salesman. Then we have the third character in the movie. They're basically three main characters. And the third main character in the movie is Barbara Stanwyck, and who is, of course, fantastic. And she is possibly the ultimate film noir uh, femme fatale. She is, she's really amazing. She's the one who is one of the primary drivers of the whole plot, really, even though Frederick Murray is, is one of the, you know, I believe she's actually top billed. But she brings an incredible presence as well. Some of the other movies she's done, well, one of the big ones is The Postman Only Rings Twice, which was uh, made only two years after this, in which she also played an incredibly good role. That was also a very big film noir of his time. But uh, yes, it, it involves uh, a plot, basically, a plot behind the life insurance policy to get you know that, that circumstance where you get double back, and then you're set up for life, right? Because you got double the life insurance on your husband. And so that's the, uh, the story, that basically the setup of it all. What, what sort of like, style, impression, when you're watching it, what do you feel? Mm -hmm. Right from the get-go, this movie is it's, it's perfect film noir in that it has some over-narrations of, you know, of the main character. And so you have that kind of thing about it. So it's him reflecting on w what is happening. And he gets to include all the emotions that he feels, which is such a... That, that, that is very film noir. I really did too, you old crab. I was yelling your head off. I was sore at everybody. But you never fooled me with your song and dance, not for a second. I kind of always knew that behind the cigar ashes on your vest, you had a heart as big as a house. I, I think the word to best describe this movie would be slick. This movie is... is is really it thinks it's really cool and it is and it actually pulls it off but it, it has its own real uh, distinctive attitude it has its own wonderful pacing the music also helps out with the pacing the music was done by Nicholas Miklos Rosa who was a very very great composer of the 40s but the movie has an incredibly good pacing it just keeps on going and the story is so well told the the director is uh, Billy Wilder who is uh, one of the one of America's great directors he really brings that, that style to it, too. You, it, and if you see enough Billy Wilder films, you can tell that Wilder really, his personality is coming through it as well. But the, the combination of the stars, the director, and the story, the music, everything, makes for such a fantastic film noir experience. 
Now, and this you might have already answered this with your previous, but you say this it's a very slick movie. If you sit down and watch it, is there a certain scene or line that you just take away and that's what you'll remember? Or is it kind of just the entire atmosphere? Kind of is the whole atmosphere and kind of the, the, the attitude. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. The movie's very confident. It's confident in the way it tells a story. It's it's confident in the way that it, that it that it just pulls you in. Just the 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 attitude of of the main character Fred McMurray and just what he's what he's thinking, what's going on, and and just all of his uh, all of the building up that occurs in in his life because it's like the big you know this is of course the biggest day in the history of this character's life by far in which he recalls you know it's the beginning of it he recalls all of the the things that had occurred up to that point and so a lot of the movie is uh, is in the form of a flashback but it's just a really really long one and so you get to just keep learning about the story and as more you know everything keeps ramping up as the movie goes and and the atmosphere and just the the tension just really culminates very well say we have a, a listener who um still is he's not sold he's like okay i don't know i've never watched much film noir sounds okay is there anything you can compare it to in modern movies i mean maybe a pale comparison that's a good question. I think one reason why Double Indemnity has has gone on so long and and remains so popular today is because it's kind of on its on its own thing. It I mean it's it's related to a lot of film noir of its time, but it seems like film noir now it really doesn't it really doesn't seem like there are that many. Definitely not in the same style as the '40s. I mean the '40s really had it, and and this is a great the mid '40s were a great period of time for film noir. And I think that film noir is a, almost a necessity when you're when you first start going into classic films. If you're going to ever see a film noir, I would say this one would be a great place to start. So you you highly recommend this one? Yes, I definitely do. Any closing thoughts about it before we wrap up this selection? Well, I think the last one would be that this movie received seven Oscar nominations. It, it did very well at the Oscars. Uh, the feeling the feeling of this movie is just as good as the movie itself. I mean, when you're finished with it, you think, oh gosh, that was. That was really something. That was a ride. And, and you come out feeling just really affected by it. And we're back. So that's another movie I would like to see. I have quite a number of them that he's suggested to me that I think would be entertaining. Mm-hmm. I've always enjoyed noir, so I would like to see that too. Noir is usually, you know, it can be dark and depressing, but it's stylishly dark and depressing. <laughs> <laughs> so I need to check that one out. So I guess that's about the end of our episode today. You can contact us at derailedtrains at gmail.com if you would like to email us. You can uh, leave comments at derailedtrainsofthought.blogspot.com or you can uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you leave something insightful, we'll probably share it. Or even if you don't and leave something silly, we'll probably share that too. And, and feel free to suggest uh, podcast ideas because 
this one and the next one are kind of at least partly inspired by suggestions. So. Yeah, ne next time we're going to talk about reboots and remakes, so kind of similar to this one, but in a little different spin. And yeah, stay tuned, you'll hear about some other stuff that we're thinking about doing down the road. My soundtrack choice today, I knew it was only a matter of time before I'd feature this song because it's one of my favorite remixes of all time. It's a pretty popular one, I think. It's been around for a while. It's the one, the only, Terra in Black. Remixed from Final Fantasy VI and remixed by Aelshan. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. This is just a wonderful song. I mentioned in an earlier episode when we were talking about Final Fantasy VI as anime that this song would make a fantastic opening theme for it. And I really believe that because it's beautiful, it's rocking, it's tragic. It just embodies a lot of a lot of things that reflect the story of the game. Very epic. This has been Nick. Uh, this is Tim. Avita Zane. See you next time. Adios.
coming up sometime 2011. Everything we need to understand about life can be understood from the movie The Princess Bride. I completely agree with you there. The Christian existentialism just doesn't quite apply to works outside of French Impressionist cinema. It's so beautiful. So, Tim, tell me why Errol Flynn is the best hero ever in a movie. Well, you see... Wait, who's Errol Flynn? The Pogmara are awesome. No, don't go that way. Why did you send for me? Oh, if she had gone that way, she would have gone all right straight to that castle. So who do you think is more evil, Tim? Boris or Natasha? I would have to say Wile E. Coyote. Wile E. Coyote? Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, you want a piece of me? You're a boy, you know. What? Eureka. That's discovery. Yeah. Are you a hero or a villain? That is awesome. Come on, Martha Jones traveled around the world. Are you kidding? Rose is the best. No one will ever beat Rose. Rose is so whiny. Well, this is a very bizarre skit that we're trying to piece together. We could just start screaming in intense pain. Yes. Congratulations. I'll be back. When you trained me, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. Hi, I'm Zuko. I cast Magic Missile. I cast it at the darkness. I was going to go to the Taji Station to pick up some power converters. Call!